0: Welcome to the Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, your producer and co-host today. I've got a special treat for you today. We have a new show on our production network, and we're extremely excited to have this gentleman. Uh, We're on episode 117. Before I introduce the name of our new show and introduce our our new host of that show, I want to just give a quick message to our 11,500 subscribers. We want to thank you for your support. We remind you to follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can get us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I do a post every day on Facebook, which is geared by our audience, and I love those questions. You challenge me every day. And make sure you download, listen, like, and subscribe. That's real important to our numbers to make sure that we can show people that we are attracting an audience. And want to make sure we continue to deliver for you guys. And with that, I want to introduce our new show. It's called Cots Corner. And the star of that show is Hall of Fame Pitcher and legendary broadcaster, Jim Cott. Jim, welcome to your show.
1: Well, thank you, Dave. I'm looking forward to doing this.
0: I am too. I was. We were f- f- flattered to have you on as a guest on one of our other shows, and your, uh, your presence on that show just went through the roof. And I know as we talked before and afterwards and during, um, I was equally impressed with your recall of all the events that went on in your your illustrious baseball career and your broadcasting career, as I was with the career. I was amazed at how you would just be able to call weather and counts and what people said. It's just phenomenal. And thought, as we talked out loud, that this would make for a great show, which our premise is to help build better baseball IQs out there uh, with our audience. And as we talked about, it's definitely needed in today's game.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That's kind of what I'd like to do. I mean, I'm I'm no longer uh, an active player, coach or broadcaster, but I do want to stay connected with the game. And uh, the more I've been a guest on podcasts and now I will get a chance to kind of uh, co-host my own, uh, I, I think there are a lot of areas. One of the areas I'd like to explore, uh, I was talking to Dan Shaughnessy and, and Tyler Kepner, who just did an article in the uh, times uh on the philadelphia a's is maybe delve into the background of some of these writers uh and find out what their interest was in baseball how they got to where they are because they're usually interviewing us
0: that's a great so, yeah
1: yeah it'd be interesting to find out uh you know how they got started and how they like uh, tyler Kepner, for example said jason stark was kind of his his role model when Jason was covering the Phillies, that's just about the time my career ended there. And now of course, Tyler is one of the top baseball guys at the New York times.
0: He is. Yeah. And they, they paint such a wonderful picture, not just present day, but we can look on years from now to, to remind ourselves of what happened on any particular day in baseball. You you kind of touched on the first question I had for you um, on this particular show is with, with all that you've done and, and both as a player and a broadcaster, it's, it's spanned over decades. I believe five, six decades, correct? Um,
1: I actually it touched on eight.
0: Eight. Oh, I missed (laughs) you two. Why why do you want to do a podcast now? And what can our audience hope to expect as we do this?
1: Well, I have some strong opinions on, uh, on the way the game is operated today. And it's kind of a, uh, it's a catch 22. I mean, that's an old cliche, but, I I love the game, but I don't really agree with the game the way it is played and operated today. And so I'd like to throw a lot of ideas out there that might even help uh, some young players that are up and coming. And then, as I mentioned, I think there are uh, colleagues. I recently was at a memorabilia show in New Jersey, and there were 53 former Yankees there. Uh, Many were my teammates in the late 70s, Chris Chambliss, Greg Nettles, uh, guys I hadn't seen for a long, long time. And it would kind of be good to delve into, uh, you know, what they've been doing. Uh, The other day, two days ago, I had a nice phone conversation with my boyhood idol, Bobby Shantz, who's 97 years old, uh, American League MVP in 1952. (laughs) So you know, there's there's a lot of topics we can cover, and, and as you said, I think uh, it would be nice to kind of raise the baseball IQ or interest uh, in our game.
0: I, I couldn't agree with you more, and some of those names you mentioned are, are guys that I grew up watching, and Greg Nettles just made me smile when you say it, arguably. the I mean, Brooks Robinson has a claim to it, but Nettles has to be a close second in terms of greatest defensive third baseman of all time.
1: Yeah, he's there with, of course, Mike Schmidt was a, a more modern day, the, you know, the greatest, and now Scotty Rowland, who's going in the Hall of Fame this year, Nolan Arenado. But, you know, the story with Greg uh, is that uh, I reminded him when he got called up uh, the last month of the season, 1967, he and Ginger didn't have a place to stay, his wife Ginger. And uh, so I had an extra room in my house, so we actually stayed uh in my house with my wife and I for the last month in 1967. Well, now in spring training of 68 in Orlando on uh, the field at Tinker Field, it was very, very rocky and a rough field. And he was playing third base and he made a few errors and the owner, Calvin Griffiths said, well, this kid can't play third base. We got to put him in left field. So they did. And the next thing you know, they trade him to Cleveland. And in turn, they trade him to the Yankees. And now we all found out, yeah, you put him on a decent field. And he was a great third baseman. But yeah. that's that's kind of the background of Greg coming up with the Twins.
0: Yeah, he could definitely pick it. I, I want to get going with, uh, and I, 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 we, I think our show would benefit greatly for having gentlemen on, like you mentioned, uh, to share their stories as well. I think that's a fantastic idea and would be certainly a treat for our audience Let's start with the state of the game. We, we we could probably close our eyes and throw a dart at a dartboard to pick uh, topics, but um, w- let's start with the rule changes. I mean, there's a number of different rule changes, um, speeding the pitcher up. Let, let's let's start with that.
1: Well, I, I first of all, most of the rule changes are there because these players who are adults and have tremendous skills. Bigger, faster, stronger than we were in our era. And yet they haven't they haven't adapted to you know the, the fans' interest in the game. Uh you you don't need all this outside information on the day of the game. All some of this scientific data might help you in preparation. But if the pitchers pitched at a at a reasonable pace like they have for years, if hitters stayed in the batter's box and just concentrated on the next pitch coming instead of, you know, fastening their batting gloves and things like that. We wouldn't need these rules, but I think the pitch clock, and I experienced this uh, last year, I was working a twins tigers series and the tigers had called up several pitchers from the minor leagues. And I saw Dan Petrie who was doing some of their commentary and Dan was one of their great pitchers uh, back, I think in the, probably the eighties and the nineties. And I said, man, your pitchers are getting after it. He said, well, they've all come up from the minor leagues and that's where they're using the pitch clock. And see, that's what I think with these rules, if baseball would have gone to the lowest minors and, and institute a lot of these that, that are important. And the pitch clock is one, the shift only has to be taken away because hitters chose not to take that open alley and go for base hits because the way they're rewarded uh, with their paycheck is go ahead and strike out 200 times, hit 25 home runs and hit 210. And, and you're fine. I mean, I told Pete Rose at a recent show, and I told Rob Carew, Tony Gwynn would fall in that category, Wade Boggs. They have scouted you guys out of the game. The number one draft pick, if the draft opened today in my era, would be Dave Kingman and Rob Deere. And if you recognize those names, yeah. they hit a lot of home runs. They strike out a lot. They hit about two ten. But that seems to be what teams are after. The Twins are after the Twins, for example, traded the American League batting champion, who was a a modern day version of Rod Carew, and so he's gone, and Joey Gallo is going to take his place.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite hitters in the game right now, Luis Arias. I think. Yeah, he-
1: and so. Uh, you know, so I hate to see all the, the one that really disturbed me the most when it came out was the relief pitcher having to face three hitters. And I remember walking into uh, uh, the, the clubhouse, the locker room of the uh, golf course where I played golf in Florida. And uh, <clears throat> Tony Pettini was there who was my boss at the MLB network and then was working for the commissioner. And I walked in, I said, Tony, I just heard that a new rule is coming into the game where a relief pitcher has to face three hitters. I said, that is the dumbest rule I've heard. I said, Whitey Herzog would bring me in to face, say, a left-hand hitter, but he does, he wouldn't want me to stay in and face like a, a Mike Trout or somebody like that. It's taking away the manager's strategy. And Tony said, well, well don't say too much about it because it was my idea. <laughs> so I think that, uh MLB maybe without talking to managers and players about how these things will infect the, uh affect the strategy of the game uh they just throw them out there uh and think that it's going to speed up play it's not so uh, those those are the things I, I don't like is that you have to face three hitters i mean at one point they tried to force hitters to stay in the box well, let's say in Big Poppy's case, he's been hitting like that for years. You're not going to change him. You have to go to the lowest minors and say, "Guys, low class A ball. You keep one foot in the box. Pitchers, you deliver the ball within X amount of. You train them in the minor leagues, and by the time they get to the big leagues, you won't you won't need those rules in place because they all will will have adapted.
0: In in your dealings with. Both management, I guess, and, and obviously you still talk to current former players and, and, and managers, skippers that are – that is, what will this – I'm not making up a word here, Jim, I'm sorry, but what is this over-legislation? What will it do to the intuitive nature of the game?
1: Uh, you mean like the shift, uh, going back to yeah, the
0: controlling – Timing on the mound shifts yeah. the number of batters that you, you and stepping off. You hit
1: on it, yeah. You hit on a key word there. I was uh, having dinner the other night, and one of the uh, people at the dinner table was a uh, psychotherapist, and she mentioned how even in our in our schools that kids they rely on somebody to tell them what to do based on certain data. They are not curious. They don't use their intuitive skills and figure it out themselves, which is what we had to do as players. I never had a pitching coach till I got to the big leagues. I never had a trainer till I got to double A. You know, you just you signed, you went out, you played and you figured it out. And we've taken that away from today's players. Uh, I don't think it's their fault. Uh, I think they would love to be coached and, and and told how to improve things. Uh, I'll mention this example, and it, it doesn't bother me ego-wise. But you know, when my career ended, I play, I pitched longer than any other pitcher in history. And then T.J. came along, Tommy John, and Nolan Ryan. Well, I learned things from Warren Spahn, uh, how to train my arm in spring training. Uh, Robin Roberts, psychology of pitching. How do you pitch, Willie Mays? Tell me the inning, the score, and the count. Whitey Ford, how I grip my fastball. Well. In all the time that I've been involved in the game, I have yet to have a pitching coach or a player ask me how I did something that they might be able to do better. The main thing is I think I could really help them in training their arms in spring training. But today's athlete, probably in all sports, they rely on scientific data and not on tried and true methods that have been proven between the foul lines. Uh, that have helped
0: uh, players succeed. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I bet if I asked you a hitter right now, you could probably tell me how you work that hitter um, at some point in time. And the part that bothers me about current players is they have to flip little index cards out of their hat to see how they're going to play a hitter from the inning before. But you could recall a hitter you faced 30 years ago. Yeah,
1: that, that's that's embarrassing, really, when I see him do that. I can remember we'd get on the bus with the Phillies, and we're going to Pittsburgh to go to the airport. Larry Boa would already shout out who the starters were going to be for the Pirates, how Bill Madlock was hitting, all that kind of information. And, you know, we we found that out ourselves. Well, I found, and I won't mention names, but I found even some, some star players I'd be hanging around the batting cage And one of the players in the lineup would say, uh, who's pitching for them tonight? I said, really? (laughs) I mean, uh, you'd know four days in advance who was pitching. And like you said, I mean, somebody will mention a name to me. Uh, I remember years ago, they they asked me, uh, they said, do you remember Woody Held? I said, yeah, low ball hitter. (laughs) That's the first way we described them, because we had to figure those things out on our own.
0: Yeah. And and possibly they're, they're not exercising. I mean, you're being, you're. And I, I appreciate the way you're putting it. It's, it is a problem and you're being diplomatic with, hey, it may not be the player's fault because they're being brought up that way. But is it a, is it as simple as they're not exercising that muscle anymore and it's just gone away or never even existed? You know,
1: some of the, some of the really good pitching performances, for example, uh, we had a, a left-hander named Tommy Hall, slender, we call him the blade. And if he, um, if he knew he was starting uh, for three days, he couldn't sleep. You know, he would be nervous. So he didn't do real, real well as a starter. Well, then the way they would trick them, pitchers, they are guys that thought like that. They'd get to the park and the manager would say, whoever the starter was, you know what? He, he's got a little problem with his shoulder. You're pitching tonight. Here's the ball. And they'd go out and they'd pitch one of the best games they pitched all year. because they didn't carry all those negative thoughts and all that anxiety, uh, you know, building up to the next start. And that's why I think we, if you just, I always, Dick Allen loved this and some of the White Sox teammates as well, is when, when we would get ready to take the field and I was pitching, we would always trot on the field and I'd say, okay, guys, cut your head off and let your body go to work. They don't pay us to think. And you know we would go out and let our natural reactions take over our intuitive skills and if they didn't work that day, then the next day you go to work on them between starts, but you don't it's kind of like writing your name and tracing your name. You know if you just took a pen and wrote your name, freestyle, okay, that's pretty easy to do now you take that pen and somebody says, "Trace your name." Well, that's kind of how today's players are playing versus the way players years ago played.
0: That's a great way to put it. I, I like that. That's, that's, the, that's the intuitive baseball man meeting the expert analyst that you've been for decades up in the, the booth there. What, what, um, I want to talk about one more rule change and I want to get into your how you would connect with pitchers nowadays because I think your knowledge would be invaluable right. as a way to change it. This rule for pitchers on disengaging if you're aware of it, they're only allowed to disengage twice per at bat, meaning yeah. step off the mound or throw to first. That to me was the rule that hit me the hardest because I'm a, I'm a hitter and I can only think of ways that I would manipulate that rule beyond belief. Um, what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Stupid. <laughs> stupid like a lot of them. I mean, what you're doing is you're forcing the pitcher. Once he steps off once, the base runner's got him. Oh yeah. Because he can't do it again. So I don't get it. I mean, these guys are adults. They're smart. Most of them to now came out of college programs, which we never did. Why do you have to institute a rule like that to, to feed their brain that you don't think they could think about that themselves? Uh, I don't get it. You know, I know they've got these. They, they want to make the game more exciting. They want the bases bigger and, and they want more stolen bases. Okay, raise the left field wall, the right field wall. Don't make it so easy to hit home runs. Uh, deaden the ball. That's all you have to do. And if they don't do that and they keep the same rules, I mean, the, the best one would be to see a better brand of baseball would be to shorten the games to seven innings. Yeah, actually, actually a real radical change would be shorten the season to 100 games because we have more injuries today than ever before. You know, they're not going to do that because of revenue. But he is take a star player like Byron Buxton. I mean, when this guy's healthy, he is as exciting a player as there is in the game. And he he's wound up like an Olympic sprinter. He's wiry and strong but he's more susceptible to injuries than we were. We didn't run as fast. We didn't jump as high. We weren't as athletic. And so he gets injured a lot. So the twins, their plan is to play him a hundred games. Well, if I'm a, a father and I got a young son that loves the twins, well, let's go to the game tonight. Well, I want to see Byron Buxton. Well, a third of the time or more, he's now going to be in the lineup. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I looked at, I talked to Scotty Rowland recently, who was going in the Hall of Fame. When well, you look at his record, 158 games, 159 games. They played a lot of games. They showed up every day and played. And we don't have that today because of the injuries. Well, maybe if you shortened the season, didn't play as many games, played shorter games, you wouldn't have as many injuries. You wouldn't have to use as many pitchers that. Uh, In a perfect world, it's not that they can't be big league pitchers, but they probably would be better off spending an entire year in the minor leagues and honing their craft. Uh, I know from doing minor league games uh, on television, and managers will tell me the shuttle that goes back and forth. So a guy gets called up to the big leagues, he's there for a week or 10 days, they send him back down. Well, as soon as he gets down, Well, you can only throw, you know, so many pitches and he can't wait to get called back up. So he's just on that shuttle all year and he never really gets to dig his feet in and spend a whole year there and hone his craft. Like I told Jack McKeon, who was my minor league manager in 1958, he was at my induction this year. I had him stand up and acknowledge him because I said without Jack, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I started out the season in 1958. I was one and four. And I thought at 19 years old, I thought, well, one more bad start. I'm going home. And Jack noticed that I was a little anxious, (laughs) to put it kindly. And he said, kid, you're going to pitch for me every four days. You may pitch some in between because we only have seven pitchers on our staff. We have 17-man roster." Well, at the end of that year, I had pitched, including the playoffs, 245 innings. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about pitching. I learned a lot about being a good teammate. You know, I got in a jam. Jack would trot out toward the mound. Might spit a little tobacco juice on my shoes. And he said, OK, kid, you got into it. Figure out a way to get out
0: of it. <laughs> That's my favorite. I love that. One.
1: Yeah, And, you know, you a lot of times you didn't, but eventually you did. And today... The pitchers with all that talent don't get that opportunity because after two, th- two times through the batting order, instead of figuring out a way to adjust that third time, they take them out of the game. And that's sad. Yeah.
0: Kind of leads into my, my next question. You, you, you talked about the number of innings that you threw in the minors. We don't see guys do that today. They physically, mentally aren't capable. And I agree with you. The, the guys today are far better athletes than in my time and your time. Um, we just you could see it with the eye tests. They can run faster, jump higher, their muscles are bigger and stronger. Why are and and they they have more information at their hands. So I guess the the pointed question is, why are they injured more? And why are they and I I say this affectionately, why are they dumber players?
1: (laughs) I always like Mickey Lowlich's comment. If you look up Mickey Lowlich's record, I mean I can make a case for him being in the Hall of Fame. But when you look at uh, some of his numbers in the 70s where he pitched 370 innings, 30 complete games and, you know, he owned a donut shop. Mickey would get a little heavy and then they'd get on him about his weight. And then as soon as he pitched a good game, they'd, they'd get off him. And he said, you know, you can't pull fat, so I don't pull any muscles. <laughs> He's very durable. But I, I think today they, they train the players like they're football players. And I, by accident, founded the first strength and flexibility coach, Gus Heffling, when I was with the Phillies in 76. And we concentrated on strength and flexibility. Now, I know they say that do that today, but baseball has put pressure on young kids, pitchers and players. You have to throw 95. Well, if you're 17 and your body hasn't filled out, I mean, if I went to a tryout camp today, I wouldn't get signed. After my first summer in minor league ball, the the manager said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. You know, I had grown to about 6'3". I was like gangly. I was like Marmaduke. You know, elbows going all over the place. And it took me a while to fill out and get my fastball. Well, today, if kids don't show that at an early age, they don't get signed as a result. They try to throw too hard, too soon, and they end up uh, on the operating table or out of the game completely.
0: Far too common now. We see it on, you know, the injuries are, but we see it on all social mediums with kids chasing velocity with these crazy throws. And it's on the other side of the the diamond, too. It's with hitters where exit velocity has become the way the world. Uh, were they- yeah,
1: it's, it's all about power. I think it's, it's ruined some hitters. I think it uh, comes to mind, I believe I've heard Andrew Benintendi say that he got caught up in launching and he's maybe not that kind of a hitter. Uh, I played with three of the great hitters of all time, all Hall of Famers Harmon Killebrew, Rod Carew, Tony Oliva. They were all different. Harmon was a guy that didn't try to launch the ball, he just did. That was his swing. Rod Carew, his exit velocity, I don't know, might have hit 90. Uh, Tony Oliva was a combination of both. And so every hitter is different. So to think that you can have nine hitters and you're going to train them all to launch and lift and hit it out of the park, to me, that's boring baseball. I don't even want to go to a game and watch that.
0: Isn't it ironic that a lot of these changes are with the intent of making baseball less boring? And it's if if the the powers to be listened to. People like yourself, they would realize that it's counterproductive what they're trying to do. This cookie cutter approach to throwing and hitting, I mean, I again I, I think it's a point of question. It doesn't work, correct?
1: Well, I, I think if you talk to a lot of coaches, pitching and hitting, they would agree. But unfortunately, uh the people upstairs, many of whom have never played and rely on the data, if the coach doesn't abide by their information and system. They lose a job uh, and, and that's unfortunate. I think if you got a lot of these coaches in the corner, they would prefer not not to do that it It pains me particularly from a pitching standpoint, and I know some of these coaches that came out of college are probably very knowledgeable with helping a guy with mechanics with all the information that that's their spin rate that's fine. work with them on the side, but when I see a coach that has never pitched in the big leagues, run out to the mound to talk to a pitcher. To me, he has no business going across that foul line because he doesn't know the heartbeat of that athlete, that pitcher. What's going through his mind? How did he pitch this guy the last time the only two guys that really know how you ought to pitch this upcoming hitter are the pitcher and the catcher, right? Because they've been in the game the whole time. And so that's a real disservice to pitchers, to, to have somebody go out there that has pitching experience in the big leagues. You can work with them on the side on mechanics, but don't go out to the mound during
0: the game. What, what should they be communicating if they do go out to the mound? Well, I guess, what are they communicating improperly and what should they be?
1: Well, I think today it is a bit different because it's on the job training. You have so many, uh, uh young pitchers, but, uh, you know, uh, the famous story with my friend Timmy McCarver who caught Bob Gibson and read Shane Dean's kind of motion to, to Timmy. You know, Gibby was struggling a little and she'd run out to the mound and talk to him. Timmy got about 10 feet away and Gibby said, what are you doing out here, white boy? And uh, he said, the only thing you know about hitting is as hard, uh, pitching is it's hard to hit. Get back behind the plate. <laughs> so, you know, when a pitcher gets out there, they want to, they, they're kind of in their own little world. And uh, I, when I coach for Pete, Pete Rose, I was a pitching coach in the mid 80s and Joe Morgan was doing games on TV. And so the only time I went to the mound was to buy time for the guy in the bullpen to get a little loose because the starter was beginning to get hit. And uh, so I remember Jay Tibbs was on the mound one day. He was struggling. And Joe Morgan said, not mean spirit or malicious- maliciously, he said, uh, wow, I would think the pitching coach might be running out to the mound right now and talk to him." So a couple days went by and I saw Joe around the batting cage and I said, Joe, you wondered why I don't go out to the mound. He said, yeah. I said, well, let me ask you this. You're hitting with the bases loaded and uh, you come up to the plate and just before the pitcher starts time and the hitting coach calls you out of the box and says, now look, Joe, I want you to keep your right shoulder in. Uh, I want you to hold the bat here. What do you want to do? You want to punch him, right? (laughs) You, You don't want that information. Well, why do they do it to pitchers and not hitters?
0: That's a fair point. I never
1: yeah, thought about so, that. Yeah. So the only time, you know, we would say, here's the ball. You pitch today. Whatever you got going for you, we're going with that. If it doesn't work, we'll start working on it tomorrow to fix it. But uh, this in-game coaching, as two of the great coaches I had, Eddie Lopat and Johnny Sain, would say, when the game starts, coaching stops. We do that in preparation before the game, not during the game.
0: It goes back to the comment you made a few minutes back, where you said, "Take cut your head off and let your bodies right. do what they were trained to do." And I use a similar phrase with our with our guys that we work with now, and we try to give back to the community here with baseball. And uh, I tell them to do something else with their heads to put it somewhere, but they uh, and just let your bodies, you know, put them in your put your head in your back pocket and let your bodies go to work. It's been trained to right. do what It's been trained to do. You can't change it now. Um, c- catching now. You know, uh, the pitcher-catcher relationship is so special, and my son is a catcher, and he's, he's, he enjoys it, he loves it, he embodies it. We, I have a hard time with him watching what goes on out there, especially with this one knee catching. What's your thoughts on that?
1: You know, I wasn't a catcher, but in every catcher that has big league experience has agreed, they don't like catching with that one leg splayed out. And I know uh, former big league catchers that are working for organizations now that don't want to do it, but they're forced to do it. Uh, And I I know I heard Ryan Jeffers, I was doing a twins game on TV and Ryan Jeffers is a fine young player, young catcher. and, And so his wife heard me comment on how I disliked the way they did that. So he came up to me the next day. You know, he wanted to talk to me. It was a good conversation. He said, you know, uh, I heard you don't like the way our." I said, no, I don't. I'm not a catcher. But well, he explained, he said, you know, it's easier on the knees. We can get more comfortable. I said, yeah, but if I'm a pitcher, I want you in a position to throw the guy out at second base. I don't care how comfortable you are. <laughs> That's your top priority. And I wasn't a catcher, but I mean, the, the, the catchers that, uh, that I talked to that were seasoned catchers. uh, None of them seem to like that. So I don't, I can't imagine that it came from Johnny Bench uh, or my friend, Phil Roof, (laughs) who caught for years. I don't think it came from them. So I don't know where it came from.
0: Yeah, I I tend to agree with you there. But yeah, from a pitching standpoint, you, you know, pitchers are asked sometimes to, well, I guess look at it from that standpoint. Does it does it help or hinder the target? Obviously, block, to me, blocking would be very challenging if you're trying to bury a, a pitch and there, or something gets away. And even throwing out runners, it sounds like that would make you uncomfortable as a pitcher throwing to that.
1: Yeah, I, I think in general, uh, you know, I see catchers set up and they'll move. In some cases, the target is actually outside the strike zone, right on the corner outside. And then they're having a pitcher that has limited experience and throws 97 miles an hour. And be happy that he just throws it in the strike zone. But yet they're sitting out there on a corner. Now, I had decent control for a pitcher, especially for a left-hander, because we were known as being kind of wild. So my target was Earl Batty, who was a great catcher for me in my early years, was the two points on his shin guards at the knees and then it was the two flaps on his chest protectors up across the the shoulders and so that framed the strike zone and then the glove was in the middle and then as i went into the windup, i knew i wanted to throw the ball like low and away earl would just slightly shift so that the target was toward the outside or the inside and not shift too early so the hitter could pick it up but i think today they're again they're they're taking it to a level where the young pitchers are not capable of doing that. I'll give you a quick example. Andy, Mc, uh, Andy McGaffigan had a great arm. Uh, he pitched for the Reds for a short period of time, did some time with the Yankees, the, uh, the Expos. And uh, so I was his coach with the Reds. And uh, Andy was talking to me about uh, the number of pitches he had and how he liked to start and I said, well, how many pitches do you have? He said, well, I got fastball, curveball, slider, and change. I said, well, how many can you throw over on, say, three and one, three and two? Well, I think I can throw them all over. I said, okay, well, tomorrow, you're not pitching tomorrow. Let's go down the bullpen, and you get warmed up a little bit. Bruce Kim was our uh, bullpen catcher, bullpen coach, great receiver. used to catch Mark Mark Fidrich. And so I said, Kimmer's going to sit right behind the middle of the plate, and you get warmed up, and you throw me 10 fastballs in the strike zone, I don't care if they're inside corner, outside, high, low, see we can throw 10 strikes. Well, I threw about four. I said, well, so far you're not even a one-pitch pitcher. (laughs) I mean, everything works off command of the fastball. It's the only pitch you can throw to all four quadrants of the strike zone. So work on your fastball, and if you can get that in there 9 out of 10, to me, a good big league pitcher could work through a lineup with good command of his fastball and an excellent changeup. That's the pitch I wish I had during my prime was a, a, say a Max Fried or a Tommy Glavin or a Johan Santana, Frank Viola, guys like that. I mean, uh, we just weren't encouraged to do that, but that would be a real weapon. But you have to learn to, you know, to have command of your fastball. So to ask some of these inexperienced pitchers to hit corners is just counterproductive.
0: So I, I like that. So you used the, the – he had he had a built-in frame already, the shoulder pads, the flaps, the knee, shin protectors, and the glove. I see a lot of these catchers now, and, <clears throat> again, I was not a pitcher, so I can't speak intelligently about it. But I would think it would be distracting when the catcher sets that <clears throat> target, and then all of a sudden the new habit is to drop the glove down and almost snatch up toward the baseball. Do, do you see that? Do, do you know what I'm talking oh,
1: about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, now I, I... – I will have to say this if I came up today I and not knowing what I went through in my career I may have fallen into the trap of doing the same things I mean that's all they know but but there's a lot of things like that that players from the past uh could could help the players that have so much more ability to really like I had printed on my glove. Well, a couple things I always, slogans I had that many of my pitchers when we have reunions still remember, study long, study wrong. And then the other was kiss, keep it simple, stupid. So that's why I like to work fast. I don't don't want too much time to think about, well, what should I throw here? I tried to stay two pitches ahead. Okay, here's what we're starting to hit her off with. If that's a strike, we're going here. If it's a ball, we're going there. And you want to try to stay two or three pitches ahead of time, uh, and then keep the flow of the game going, uh, instead of, instead of compartmentalize and throw one pitch, get the ball back and then walk around and say, Oh, well, let's see, what should I throw now? That's too late. Uh, you got to keep a little flow, a little rhythm going.
0: Yeah. No, I like that. Uh, and I was going to ask you how you worked as a pitcher. I assumed worked fast, but, uh, when we kind of want to move to analytics in general, I and mean, then you can touch on any, we've been moving towards that as we've been talking. And in full disclosure, I'm a former college coach, former professional player. One of my advanced degrees is in foreign languages. The other one is in analytics. And I got it late in my career because I just got tired of the state of sports. And I wanted to have a seat at the table, even though I knew analytics prior to getting that degree. I have a league degree nonetheless. And so i got to see it at the table but analytics to me should be a story it should not be an absolute number from your place in the broadcast booth and from your time as a pitching coach with Pete Rose and as a as a hall of fame player um where do you see analytics where do you see its place in the game and what do you see that's happening right now with it
1: well i think the place in the game is in the front office and and with the coaching between uh, between starts or, you know, away from the game. Uh, uh, I know analytics are here to stay. Uh, if you talk to an analytics department and I said to them, uh, how many wins a year do you think your information helps you, you know, how many games?
0: I mean, everybody has
1: the same information now, so it still comes down to who's got the best players.
0: Even fans do now. I mean, they have access
1: yeah. to them. So if they said to me, well, we think it helps us win three games, I would my answer would be, well, because you're not training your pitchers how to field their position, it's costing you six. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you can have all that information. I think it's, it's helpful when, I think Tampa did a good job of this. They had some great relievers that helped them win, and all of a sudden they started pedaling this one, pedaling that one, and you wondered why, and then – they found out their stuff had deteriorated. Their velocity was down, or whatever it was. I and I talked to my friend Jim Beattie, who we were teammates with the Yankees. And Jim went on to be a general manager and a scout. And he he says the same thing. I I think they can. They have a place in, uh, you know, say with all the defensive things where where you see where hitters hit the ball. I mean, Whitey Herzog did it with colored pencils. You know where say uh, my color was red, and they, they would keep track of where they hit the ball, and that'll help you position players. But I don't think Willie McGee had to pick an index card out of his pocket to see where to play a hitter. If he did his preparation before the game, he knew where to play. him. Sure. I, I do think analytics uh, have a place in the front office, but they have done so much to slow the game down and make the game uninteresting. I've even had managers And I I won't mention their name because I don't want to get them in trouble with their front office. But I've had managers say one of the rules we ought to have is no iPads in the dugout. You know, how can you watch the game and look at an iPad? What I did with with starting pitchers is in batting practice. If Tommy Browning was starting tomorrow, I'd say, let's go sit on the bench and watch him take batting practice. And watch where they hit the ball. Read the bat. Read the bat. You can tell this guy's a pull hitter. This guy hits it that way. You can learn that yourself. Uh, you don't need the the data. Well, now they have the advantage of the data, and they can use that. I know pitchers can use Rap Soto and things like that to judge their to improve their spin rate. I mean, I can poke a hole in that when I say if Johnny Jones has one of the top five spin rates on a curveball. Let me ask you this, does he have the same spin rate with two men on in the eighth inning of a tie game that he had in the second inning with nobody on? You know, does he have it when it counts? So, so many of those stats generalize. That's right. uh, One that actually I I researched because it, it seems to be, first of all, to me, it's one of the most deceptive stats is war. And a lot of people subscribe to it. Well, I asked a sports writer one time. I said now, and I did this several times during my career. Uh, If I had a couple rough starts, I would go to Sam Neely and say, uh, if we have a blowout game late in the game, instead of throwing on the side, I like to come in and pitch a couple innings. I got to see if I can figure something out. So I came in against the White Sox. I gave up three home runs, two to Tommy McCraw, one to Gary Peters. I gave up about five runs in an inning and two thirds. But I got myself straightened out. Well, so I said, does that count against my war? Absolutely. Well, see, today an agent would say, well, don't go out and do that. and Take a chance on lowering your war. I didn't care about my war. I, I cared about getting my stuff together so I could do better in my next start.
0: Yeah, that you, you hit on a great point where... I I agree that, you know, there's analytics, there's a, there's a place for it. My concern with it is is that when it becomes an absolute number that you can't discuss, and even the formula is hidden like war, um, try to get the formula from somebody. It's like, uh, it's asking for the launch codes. Yeah, I
1: I still can't, I still can't figure it. I, I remember talking about, well, this, this is not really analytics as much as it is metrics and, uh, you know, things like we see launch angles. So MLB Network called all of what they call the talent, the announcers, in for a seminar when StatCast first came on board. Oh, sure. And uh, so everybody is gaga about what this is going to do for the game, how interesting it's going to be. And when I flew home to Florida, the people on the plane must have wondered, what's that guy up there shaking his head for? I shook my head all the way home. I said, this is one of the worst things that's happened to our game. Uh, It's eye candy. It's caused hitters to alter their swing. It's called pitcher. It's caused pitchers to try to overthrow. Uh, You know, and it looks good on the scoreboard. uh, 98 miles an hour looks good on the scoreboard, but it is counterproductive to maximizing the skill of the players that already have more skill than any generation in the game of baseball.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's dumbing them down basically. Right. I, uh, now you had a unique position in the broadcast booth as a hall of fame player and much like the, the, the situation with the catcher on the field, you made mention of the one knee and you wanted to talk about it. To me, your voice would be gospel up there. Listening to it, how did you handle that? Where once you you called a game, you had opinions on the game, critique the game. How did you handle that with relationships with the current players um, once the game was over? Kind of like you did with the catcher. What were some? I mean, did you mingle with the players? Did you stay away? How, how did you How did you deal with that dynamic?
1: Well, I, w- I was fortunate. The best job as a as an analyst is to be with a team. And I was I was blessed to be with the New York Yankees during when Derek Jeter came up as a rookie in ninety-five. And so every day I I got to mingle with those guys. If I walk into a clubhouse today, uh, I kinda this is a this is a cute little story, but you know, they retired my number this past year in Minnesota. So they surprised me. They brought me into the clubhouse and Rocco Baldelli was there and he mentioned my stats and the players are all sitting around and And then Joe Maurer is there with Rod Carew, Ken Herbeck, Burt Blylevin, et cetera, all the Tony, all the guys at Tom Kelly have their number retired. So they pull the the, uh, cloth down and there's my number on the wall. And then Rocco says, Jim's number's being retired today for his accomplishments with the twins. So they gave me a nice round of applause and I'm walking out with Rod Carew and I say, Rodney. You know, these guys, when they heard all that, they're saying, We've seen him around here, but we didn't know he played right <laughs> now, I don't mean that as as critical of him, but see, I don't identify or relate to the players today, and that's why I needed to get out of it. I don't want to use the broadcast booth as a forum to poke holes in what they're doing. I think the booth needs somebody like an Adam Wainwright who has come up during the analytics era, knows the pluses and the minuses, and he can convey that to the audience and he knows the players. Uh you know when you're doing a network game and you're doing about 10 games a year, you never really get to to have that personal connection with players like you. I did the Twins games for 6 years and then I did the Yankee games for 13 years. So those those were the best jobs and that's where you have the you know the the best information that you can get on a daily basis. Uh what we do on the network level, as we depend on reams of paper and statistics, and I learned from the great John Madden, uh, do your homework and throw your notes in the trash can and just watch the game and tell people what they're looking
0: at. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why you were good. That's why he was good. I, the guys like Hubie Brown, they tell you the why. That's, what, that's why yeah. I enjoyed that. My, my old adage was uh, you take notes, but rip it up. The good stuff will stick. Yeah.
1: As John, John told me, he said, you know, if you got things written down, you're going to want to get them in and it might not be the right time. And if you don't mention them, they probably weren't that important. And then Dick Stockton, who was a great play by play guy and so helpful to me as was Dick Enberg and Bill White. And Dick said, I do the who and what here's Johnny Jones. He's from Louisville, Kentucky. And he gives his bio. You do the how and why. And that's really how you cut up the play by play man in the Alice.
0: It's kind of like us here today. That's uh that's what you're giving us today. With so I'm I'm curious as to when this stopped with players being receptive to um, obviously beyond credible information. Take take me back to when you were pitching coach with Pete Rose. Where was there more of a sense of this guy has something to offer? I need to pay attention than there is today.
1: Uh, when you say this guy has something to it. Oh, meaning you,
0: meaning you, sorry. meaning me. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I I think in in coaching, uh, I remember when my first day on the job coaching for Pete, I said to the pitchers, this will be the shortest meeting you've ever had, probably. I said, as long as the game has been around, you have to command your fastball. Pitching is high and tight, low and away. Get your secondary pitches over when you're behind in the count. Pull hitters, we play them a step to pull. Guys hit the opposite, we play them step the other way. Most important pitch is strike one. Second most important pitch is strike two. Go get them. That was my, that was my meeting. And I think we we didn't have a clicker then, uh, didn't count pitches. We had a chart the next day that would give us information. For example, Mario Soto, who was one of the great right-handers in the in the league then when Cincinnati didn't have a winning team. Outstanding changeup. And his fastball was in the, not quite in the mid-90s, but in those days it was considered pretty fast. But when his changeup was, uh, was like 10 to 12 miles an hour, slower than his fastball, uh, it was effective. If it was only seven or eight, hitters tended to time it. So we would get that information the next day and then we'd go over that and see if that kind of information could be helpful. Uh, All the years I did Yankee games, 13 years, I don't remember a lot of, a lot of pitches. They, they gradually started counting pitches. Uh, As Johnny Sain said, I don't, we don't need to count pitches. He said that hitter will let you know when it's time to come out. When they start driving the ball in the gaps, it's time to get them out of there. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, and then I think, uh, Tampa maybe started with it and then all these exaggerated shifts and, and that's when it all began to, uh, you know, the tail started wagging the dog. It all of a sudden became more important than the intuitive skill on the player that if you just, uh, you know, made out the lineup card and threw the ball to the pitcher and said, Hey, go play, have a good time. They'd probably be at least as good and maybe better than they are with the information.
0: Yeah. Do you think it'll ever swing back?
1: Teddy Simmons does. Teddy's an interesting guy. He's, he was a teammate of mine, and he, he hasn't figured out where if you had 13 pitchers and they each pitch 48 innings and you each pitch of every other day, how uh, you could get through the year. I don't care to go to a game like that. So he, they're convinced that it might come back. Uh, I'm 84. It's not coming back in my lifetime. Until, until a team like the the favorite team that I was on. I liked all the teams, but the 1982 Cardinals, we hit 67 home runs as a team. We stole 200 bases. Whitey Herzog said, I'm going to make up my staff from the ninth inning back. We got Bruce Suter at the end. I was a lefty-lefty guy. We had Jeff Lottie, good slider. He'd come in with men on. Uh, Mark Litell might start an inning, didn't bring him in with men on because he tended to walk. So we had that bullpen organized and we ended up winning the world series with the fewest home runs, beating the team that had the most, the Milwaukee Brewers. And that was my favorite team. And since then, I don't think anybody has played baseball like those 82 Cardinals. And and they did it a little in the, after I left there too, with Vince Coleman, the guys in the, in the mid eighties, you know, Willie McGee, we had Willie McGee and, right. Ozzie and, Ozzie and Lottie Smith and Tommy Her who could run. And we had Keith at first base, one of the great first basemen of all time. So we did it with pitching and defense and speed.
0: Yeah, and on that turf out there in Sydney, Yeah. Was, that was a fun team to watch. And you're right. I think somebody ha- it's a copycat world and people lack self-reliance. And it'll take somebody coming in and busting up the current system and winning and making money to to cause a at least a glimpse of a change, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful it happens in your lifetime. You- yeah, I'll,
1: I'll make this comment about uh, analytics, which I say, uh, you know, I don't doubt that some of the information that they have and that they pass on to players and that they use to run a game is helpful to win, but it's boring to fans. I mean, if you wanted a perfect setup, you would start one pitcher for one inning every day nine pitchers, nine innings, that would probably be pretty effective. It's tough for hitters if they're going to look at, you know, four or five pitchers a day. But as a fan, I I want to go see Max Scherzer face Jacob deGrom, and I want them both in there in the eighth and ninth inning to see who wins, (laughs) and we don't get to see that anymore.
0: We don't, and the ironic part about it is they portray this new wave of the game as more entertaining than the old way. And that's, nah. it's not, I agree with you 110%. And that's part of the propaganda. I, my, my old adage. is I'm, I'm a chess player. And I always say if the, if the pawns don't move and don't react, then the chess game can't happen. So right. I you know, yeah. we hope that I, I promise you, I wouldn't keep you too long today. And I kind of lied there. I kept you for almost an hour, but would you be okay? Oh. You mentioned Teddy Simmons, you know, recent hall of famer. You coming in as a Hall of Famer, both well deserved. Would you mind sharing your Hall of Fame experience with the audience?
1: Well, it was uh, it was more than I could have anticipated. The the number one thing when I got that call on December twenty two. Twenty yeah, twenty twenty two. No, twenty twenty one. Yeah, I got the call in 2021, inducted in 2022. When I got that call from Jane Clark, I had heard, if you get that call, your life changes in a minute. And they give you a a time frame. The Hall of Fame does uh, 515 to 545. uh, If you're at your phone and and you have received enough votes, you'll get a phone call. And then they announce it on uh, MLB at six o'clock. So about half of that time had gone by. And my phone pinged and I looked at it, it was a 917 area code. Well, Cooperstown is I think six, 603 or 607. Six, six seven. Six, yep. six, six,
0: yep.
1: I said, well, I'm gonna answer it. And then when I answered it, the voice said, well, this is Jane Clark. Well, as soon as you hear those words, you know what it's about. And your life does, does change. And uh, what really struck me is the magnitude of the attention. I mean, all of a sudden I got calls like my college roommate who was also a pitcher on that team. I hadn't heard from him in years. You know, two days later, he calls. I already got rooms. I'm coming up there. <laughs> and so and then just the, you know, the cachet of being a Hall of Famer, the the attention and the way uh, Josh Rawich and John Chestafosky and all the staff up there, Whitney, the way they treat you. It, it's just a marvelous experience that uh, you wish every player could experience. I'm so happy this year that they got two really first class deserving guys, Freddie McGriff and Scott Rowland. And uh, I'll be able to uh, to enjoy it just as a spectator this year. But uh, you know, all the attention and the things I've been able to do, uh, they're they're far beyond what I what I ever would have expected. And from a nostalgic standpoint, what was cool for me is my dad drove to Cooperstown in nineteen forty seven to see Lefty Grove inducted. That was his favorite left-hand pitcher And so when I went through the plaque gallery, uh, as a tour of my orientation, I made sure I had my picture taken with my hand
0: on uh, Lefty's plaque. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Do you remember who you were with and where you were when you got the call?
1: I was just with Margie, my wife, you know, because I mean, Poppy and guys that are, you know, they think they're going to get in right away and they do they kind of plan ahead and well, let's have a party. Well, I'd been through that two or three times. So I had no expectations. And then, so I was just sitting there, you know, that day is as nervous a day as you can possibly have. Oh, sure. Uh, even though you don't expect it. And I, I've been through it a couple of times where I didn't get the calls. I'm watching golf and I'm walking around, I'm doing anything to take my mind off it. Uh, and that's what that day
0: is like. But uh, yeah, I was just sitting at home. Who was who the first person you called? to tell?
1: Uh, I called my friend, Jack McAleese in Philadelphia, cause he had, he had been hanging to see if I would get in. So I had to wait till six o'clock. And by that time, actually, I didn't have to call anybody cause they all called me.
0: Yeah. That's what I, was doing. <laughs> I really had a 15 minute window to right, get yeah. out
1: there. And, you know, they, they all called. So, uh, you know my son-in-law and my my daughter, unfortunately, who would have really enjoyed that, passed away a couple of years ago, but my son-in-law and you know family members like that called, but they they more called me than I called them
0: <laughs> did you did you write out your how long did it take you to write out your speech, and do you still have it?
1: uh yes, you know my uh, my agent Sandy Montag uh, and, and Jill Dribben, one of his uh, assistants there, they did a marvelous thing. They presented me with a booklet. And inside, printed word for word, is my entire induction speech. So that's a great memory to have. But yeah, it, it didn't take me too long. I tweaked it, and I sat next to go Hodges' daughter. You know, and she was she was very very nervous. I said, "Look, just just get up and talk about your dad." So I I centered on uh, my dad and a couple coaches and a guy like uh, Jack McKeon, really, to and my catchers. You know, the guys that uh, that were important to, you know, they're the reason I was standing there. So, uh, it was pretty easy.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say that, 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 that's a surreal moment, one that you dream of as a kid, but you know, it's hard to imagine until you're actually standing there at the podium. Do you, uh, do you remember the first hall of famers hand you shook once you walked up on stage? Who greeted you first?
1: Well, uh, when we were at the hotel, uh, might've been Tony Perez uh, uh, I got nice calls. The first call I got was from Jim Tomey. Uh, oh, no great. surprise. Uh, and then Tony LaRusa, Raleigh Fingers, and then Sandy Koufax called me because
0: oh, uh, really? that's a
1: thrill, of course. But he, you know, Sandy just turned 87. I, he said, Well, you're in my era. <laughs> you believe he's been in the Hall of Fame for 50 years. <laughs> that's incredible. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I think when I walked in that Otis saga, uh, Might have been Tony Perez. You know, we all kind of gather, check in the day before, and then we have a, a certain amount of. Uh, well, there's the parade, which is fantastic. Great fans that line the street and uh, on the way to the Hall of Fame. So th- that's another uh, kind of a experience that's so much, uh, such a thrill to to experience that.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a Norman Rockwell type of town too.
1: Yeah, it is
0: with Cooperstown. Well, I'm I'm uh, extremely excited about the direction of our podcast. I'm so flattered and honored that uh, I get a chance to do this with you. And thank you so much for for today. Uh, is there any other last shot you want to put out there to our audience, or you want to save it for next next round?
1: Yeah, just save it. I mean, I'm glad. I hope we we keep getting more and more uh, listeners. That uh, and then if they have. You know, requests. I think you have a way they can send in questions or topics or whatever. I'd like to do, as I do when I when I talk uh, when I speak to a lot of groups. I'll speak for a little while, but I like to have them ask questions and and I want them to hear what they're interested in, not necessarily what I'm interested in.
0: I think it's a great idea. And just so our audience knows, today's today's uh, topics were straight from our audience. I leaked it a little bit out there. I didn't want to. Uh, put it too far out, but just to let some followers know that uh, Jim would be starting his podcast today called Cots Corner. And uh, so the questions you got today were from our audience. Sometimes I ask selfish selfish questions, Jim's for me. So you'll have to get used to that. I'm an audience of one, but um, no, we will do that. And and we're not just for the audience. We're going to, it's kind of going to be a pop-up. We're going to try to do it every week. And uh, based on the day that Jim's available and We feel like we have enough content to do it, but it'll be a part of our Real Voices of the Game uh, productions, and we'll be giving you something every week, but just so they know, they can reach out to us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. They can follow us on Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and please listen, download first, because then we'll get credit for it. Download, listen, like, subscribe. We get double credit. But you can follow us on any of those social mediums and, and pose questions. And I'll take notes. Jim and I text almost daily and throw topics back and forth. And we'll let the the audience drive the ship, so to speak. So, Jim, thanks so much for today. Uh, we're, we're very lucky to have you. And hang on with me for a couple minutes after the music stops. And uh, we'll close out the production and get this thing out to our audience immediately. But thanks again for following Cots Corner on Real Voices of the Game Productions. and. You're here with Dave D'Agostino and the star of our show, Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Dave.